Welcome to Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Christopher Burke. And I'm Sean M. Thompson. Today we're talking about the 1976 film Marathon Man, directed by John Schlesinger, and with the screenplay by William Goldman, adapted from his novel, and starring Dustin Hoffman, Lawrence Olivier, Roy Scheider, and Martha Keller. This was, uh, this was an interesting one. Yeah. We've got, um, you know, Dustin Hoffman in a fairly early role. Uh, I, I enjoyed this movie um, a good bit, and I'm not sure why I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, that's the weird thing to me is like, so like throughout throughout culture, that sounds sort of weird. Uh, but, you know, it's been in the popular culture, the whole is it safe thing. People know that. They know the is it safe. And then there's like the uh, I think they know about like the tooth torture thing. But I don't think people remember this movie. Like, for instance, you know, just going off of William Goldman, people still know the Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. That's still out and about. But for some reason, Marathon Man, even though it has Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier and was pretty big when it came out. It's just one of those films that sort of, um, I don't know, just hasn't been really uh, in the public eye for a while. Yeah. And, you know, I never even heard the is it safe um, thing mentioned by anybody either. So I just was completely in the dark on this one. But, it, you know, it was, it was worthwhile. I mean, it hasn't been mentioned a ton. <laughs> you know, it's like I know in Clerks, the animated series, they make a joke out of it. So that maybe that's not a ton of stuff. I know it's been in, like there are people have referenced it and other things. Yeah, no, I actually have a friend. I told him I was watching this movie and he's like, when you get to the certain point where Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman are in a room and they have this conversation, you know, there's this really great moment. You're going to know exactly what it is when it happens. And I, I think that he was expecting me to know that he meant that conversation because I really didn't realize that until after the end of it. But uh, no, that was a great scene. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot to get there. Um, so I guess we should start. Kind of toward the beginning with the story. Um, you want to get? Yeah, I mean, my final little anecdote is um, I got the the book of it, and I I haven't read. I read it like years oh, okay. ago, but I was reading the intro, and William Goldman talks about um, a funny thing he did where he had a gum guy, like he you know for his gums that he'd mm -hmm. go to, and he told him about how he was writing this book, and he's like, yeah, and I was going to have this guy drill into a cavity, you know, for torture. And apparently, famously, this this gum doctor went, oh, no, no, Bill, if you want it to be really bad, you have him drill into a healthy <laughs> tooth. So he got the idea from one of his uh, one of his dentists, basically. Wow. And um, then later on, I guess, when he was writing the book in his apartment in New York, um, he wrote the scene in question and got on the elevator and there was a, a neighbor he had that I think was European who was like, you're a bad person. He was like, what? And she's like, I heard you. You're a bad person. And he couldn't figure out what the hell that was about. Went on vacation and his one of his kids finally said, you know, you talk when you write, right? And he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you like speak aloud when you're writing stuff. So what actually happened was he was in his office writing this scene with this guy drilling into the tooth. And the screaming, but he's like saying it out loud <laughs> while he's writing it. Okay. And his neighbor could hear this, um, I guess, and thought it was real? Or? And his neighbor could hear it through the wall, yeah. Okay, well, I, that's a little disturbing that she assumed that it was like really happening or something. <laughs> or did she just think he was a bad person because he I was mean, writing it? I don't know it. what she assumed, but like, you know, it is sort of a weird thing. Um, but yeah, so yeah, let's get into the actual... Um, plot itself it is fairly straightforward yeah yeah i mean i think it probably holds up to rewatch fairly well because it's such a like it's a bit of a well it's a convoluted story that there's probably a lot of details that i missed on a first watch but uh yeah i mean really it's it's suspense and and political intrigue uh i i don't know that it's necessarily trying to comment a whole lot on anything beyond that but for what it's worth that's a it's a good yarn 
Yeah, yeah. So we start um we start with basically Dustin Hoffman jogging uh in New York City. Uh we established that he's training for a marathon or maybe his already run a marathon i'm not really sure I think he's training he's uh he said he says he, he says he has not yet run one but he's building toward that okay yeah but so and this is um or no i might be skipping ahead actually because i isn't the very first thing with the old german guy in the car no, the, the very very first thing is that they show footage that seems to be like true life archival footage of like the olympics of an olympic runner it's uh i, I believe it's a, a black man i don't remember who it was i didn't recognize him but yeah yeah you know, okay, I, I don't yeah. know how, uh, who that would be um presumably a famous runner you know from the olympics or something like that um but yeah so they show that and then they kind of move to um dustin hoffman running yeah through new york Okay, yeah, and he's running, and we're sort of just establishing that he's a jogger. Um, there's a one sort of weird part where this guy, like, almost runs into him jogging past him, and he seems like he gets mad, so he starts more or less chasing him, even though he's just jogging, so, you know. It's like, yeah. But he picks up his pace to try to catch the guy. Yeah, he seems to be somebody that, like, they seem to have a little bit of a history of, of competition amongst one another. Like, maybe they're both going into the same race and they keep running into each other or something like that. But they, they seem to have been through this before, <laughs> is the impression I had anyway. Yeah, yeah. So he runs after him, but then a dog uh, attacks this guy who's in the lead. Um, and uh, Dustin Hoffman, I guess he goes by Babe. Um that's what his brother calls him, at least. Uh, yeah. Let me check here. Yeah, he's he's credited as Babe. Yeah, a lot so. of people call him Levy, and then like his brother calls him Babe, and I think a couple of other characters call him Babe, which I thought was interesting. They didn't bother to explain the nickname, which I guess that was a less unusual nickname maybe at the time. But I was like, you, there's got to be a story there. Yeah, I mean, he calls his brother Doc, and he calls him Babe. I don't... The Doc at least makes a little more sense. Like, maybe it's a Looney Tunes thing, <laughs> but I don't... Yeah, Babe, who knows? Maybe... Just an affectionate nickname. Yep. Maybe because he's the younger brother? I don't know. Could be. Who knows? But, um, yeah, but he's... I, uh... But, yeah, so we go from this, and um, we do establish that uh, there's some people across the street that sort of uh, give Babe shit, like a bunch of stupid people who are just like, they like to shout at him when he goes back into his uh, apartment. Yeah, and they call him a creep, which which, which I thought was... Okay, well, there's probably some backstory there. Why would they call him a creep? Uh, are we going to find that out? But they never really elaborate on that. No, not really. Um, I think they might just call everybody's <laughs> names. It could be. I don't know. New York, New York stoop dwellers. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, in the book, the part I read of the book, they do get into it a little more where they just make fun of him for having a weird run and being sort of lanky. Okay. Um, but they... That's not really, you know, he, Dustin Hoffman isn't like a lanky guy, so that obviously got yeah. nixed. Um, but yeah, then we get to one of my favorite parts of the movie, which is, uh, it's, it's more or less, there's an old German guy and he's in a bank. He opens up a safety deposit box. Um, inside the box, there's like, I think it's a pack of cigarettes. That Band-Aids. There's some diamonds in. Band-Aids. Something like that. Or a pack of, sorry, a pack of Band-Aids that there's yeah. diamonds in. So he gets those, and he leaves, and he does a handoff to someone outside of the bank, which is your first indication that there's something a little weird going on with this. 
I mean, all, the first indication is probably that he keeps it in a Band-Aid tin, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's very cloak and dagger, like it's it's slipping things casually, like you're doing a drug deal or some other nefarious activity uh, in the hustle and bustle of New York, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, he gets he gets in his car, and then uh, I, I did like this scene a lot where um, yeah, this is basically where he, he's driving around, and the the Jewish guy comes across him while his car is stalled in traffic. So that's that's basically where it goes right right to next, right? Yeah, yeah, like it's um, yeah, this older German man, his car breaks down, and then this uh, crotchety old Jewish guy is driving, and um, we sort of already established that he's like. Just a typical, I guess, New York driver, sort of aggressive and, like, isn't afraid to use the horn. So when he runs into this guy, um, he's pretty pissed off and he's, like, honking at him. He's like, get the hell out of the way. And then the German guy yells at him in German. I think he calls him a Jew yeah, in German. Yeah, he does. And that's when... It, I think he says, like, Juden yeah, or something. Yeah, he says Yuda, I think is how, how he says it, but... Um, or Juden. Yeah, so that, uh, that doesn't go over too well. Um, no, it doesn't. Uh, and... Uh, there's this sort of uh, old man car chase, basically, where finally the German guy gets his car going and this guy behind him, the Jewish guy, is so mad that he, like, <laughs> chases him down and then sort of bumps his bumper at the light. Um, and they're just sort of zooming around like madmen. And um, eventually uh, a gas truck is backing out and they don't see it and they crash into it and there's a huge explosion. Yeah, uh, farewell to uh, Herr Zell, or uh, Zell, and uh, and also unfortunately that uh, that Jewish guy who was trying to uh, run down an apparent Nazi. <laughs> but yeah, they they both they yeah, both buy yeah. the farm in the uh, in the accident, and uh, and then they kind of show uh, show the fire, and there's like these keys. There's a shot of keys that they linger on from the German guy uh, that they just kind of fade out on. So those are given some kind of significance. Uh, you know, my assumption yeah, at the time yeah, was that they had to do no. with the lockbox. Yeah, and then from here, um, let's see. I mean, I know we go back to Dustin Hoffman. I think we established that he's uh, in graduate school and he's writing a dissertation, a history dissertation. Yeah, uh, I think right before that we have um, Doc in Paris, though. That's we, we meet Doc a little bit before the university stuff. Oh, yes, you're right. So we established Doc, who is played by uh, Roy Scheider who is in Paris. Um, he's like the actual secret agent, basically. Yeah, and I kept... Uh, of the of Yeah, the I kept seeing this as, as a part that could be played by James Caan, too, for some reason. I, I, he did a fine job. It's not like I don't think he did well, but I kept seeing James Caan in that role, too. Yeah, he could. Um, and this part's interesting because, um, well, you're just establishing, you know, Paris and Roy Scheider, uh, who is Doc... Uh, being in Paris and he's doing sort of these clandestine um, affairs. Like at first he goes to a, I believe it's an antique shop. Yeah. Something like that. It's um, a secondhand shop. Cause there's a, an American couple trying to sell something to him and he just pretends to not speak English to get rid of them. Yeah. But it's, uh, I'm still, you know, like you said, it's a straightforward movie, but there's some kind of twisty turny stuff that, I think I could use an, a rewatch to know exactly what's happening with like what Roy Scheider's character is yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, it's very vague um, for a lot of it. I was con- It's sort of vague. Like, I mean, we later find out he's been helping this um helping more or less a Nazi move uh jewelry, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, but in the, at least this, you know, early days, we're not really sure what he's doing, but we know that he's uh, communicating with this antique uh, dealer who probably knows something about something he's supposed to get. Yeah, he talks about it, uh, you know, as though they've they've missed a meeting and and uh, Doc is like three days late for a prearranged meeting. And so, uh, you know, they keep referencing, do you, do you have it or do you have the thing or whatever? And you don't know what that means, but uh, they make an arrangement to meet at the opera later that night because it seems to be of utmost importance. And, um, you know, so basically Doc walks out of the antique shop and you know, I thought this was this is where things really kind of start. It escalates really quick. Like here's here we get an explosion. <laughs> uh, so we, we yeah, because we had sort of established. I forgot to mention earlier. There's someone walking um, what you assume is a baby in a stroller, and then they leave the stroller in a certain spot. And when Roy Sharder goes back, I think to get his taxi, yeah. um, this is where this. Uh, this baby carriage is, and there's, yeah, there's an explosion. This was really cool. I liked the way they showed the, um, it was one of those old-fashioned ticking time bomb things, but built into a baby, and they used its eyes to, like, gradually move upward to show the progression of time as it's about to explode, which I thought was a nice little touch. Yeah, it baby was a doll nice bomb. touch. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And uh, Roy Scheider is obviously a little shaken up. He goes and meets with another one of his contacts. Um, I think it might be his boss. Uh, the name would be... Uh, I believe this is Janeway. Oh, was that Janeway? I didn't think that was Janeway. I thought that was someone else. I thought they had like a French accent, but... I don't know. Maybe maybe it was him. Um. Oh, well... I'm, I don't know now. I, I, I thought it was Janeway he meets with, but he, well, in any case, he meets <laughs> with someone in a French cafe and basically explains, I almost got my ass blown off, so there's something going on. Yeah, and, and the interesting context there is that they've shown scenes from Paris where there's these protest marches going on. There's a lot of cyclists riding through tunnels and trying to jam up traffic or something like that. And uh, I think they mentioned strikes, but the guy that Doc meets talks about, you know, there's three bombs a day going off in Paris these days. Nobody's going to notice that or, or something to that effect. And I thought that was an interesting yeah, touch. Yeah, so it sort of becomes they add that so there's more intrigue. Like if a bomb was to go off, it wouldn't be a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and really early on, I mean, this might sound like kind of a cliche thing to say, but this really did feel a lot like a Hitchcock thriller pretty early on with this uh, all this international political dangerous intrigue going on. And clearly Dustin Hoffman's going to get mixed up and it. it's just a matter of when. Uh, and so like, yeah, I think this leans more to the Hitchcock thriller side than it doesn't maybe necessarily to the bond side. Although we do sort of get hints of like a bond type thriller later on. Oh, okay. Yeah. I never really thought about bond, but I can, can see a little bit of that maybe. <laughs> well, only in, there's only one or two scenes I'm thinking of specifically. Um, but yeah, norm. I mean, the thing about Marathon Man is it's it, it's more of like an everyman type of spy than it is like a you know world renowned secret agent type. Like they play it a little more. Yeah, these are the guys who do all the legwork. Yeah, like they're just like servicemen basically. Like they're not they're not like betting every woman they see and like jumping off a building or anything. They're just you know making deliveries and trying to communicate with uh, certain. Uh, people. Driving someone from point A to point B. Yeah, but so eventually um, Doc ends up at the opera and he has sort of a hard time finding um, his connection, this uh, antique dealer. But he eventually does find him. And this was a this actually reminded me of Hitchcock as well, but it was a effective scene because he finally finds the right box where he's supposed to sit. 
and he leans in and the antique dealer has his his throat cut and he's been dead for a bit and his body kind of falls forward. Yeah, yeah I thought a little bit, you know, in this scene and others of The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is one of my favorite of Hitchcock's movies. And I mean, it's not a direct yeah, parallel, yeah, but there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, overlap, I'd say. Um, yeah, which is the one that takes... Isn't there a famous scene in the yeah. symphony in one of that's Hitchcock's? That's it, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Is that the man who knew too much? Yeah, yeah. and he did that one twice, actually. There's yeah, a black that, and I mean, white version, and then there's a more famous one with Jim, Jamie, uh, Jamie, Jim, Jimmy Stewart, if I could say that correctly. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen the Jimmy Stewart one. Yeah, I took a Hitchcock seminar in college. Um, but yeah, so he leaves, and this is also an effective scene because we're just on um, Doc as he's sort of panicking and leaving the opera and he's supposed to meet with another connect i guess and the woman shows up outside and he kind of goes behind a uh, a pillar and says like just keep going like it's been compromised yeah. and interspersed with um you know this meeting with the mysterious guy in the french cafe and then going to the opera there's the scene where dustin hoffman shows up at grad school for the first day of a seminar uh he's working on a dissertation right, yes yeah. so this is kind of where you get more of the the th- like the thematic basis of the movie is largely in the the history of American political tyranny is what Dustin Hoffman is doing his dissertation on. And it turns out that we would learn as he's talking with the professor that uh, his father was a famous historian who got caught up in the McCarthy witch hunts and eventually killed himself. And Hoffman thinks that um, he needs to clear his father's name and that, you know, the, the McCarthyism was what led to the suicide. And so this has been haunting him because he found the body when he was a kid. And so this seems to, he seems to have, um, not a crusade, but like he's really driven by the idea of of this of American tyranny in in political life. Yeah, like he's interested in it already, but then I think the icing on the cake is that his father was involved in the McCarthy hearings, and he assumes that's why his father killed himself. So he wants to sort of clear his father's name. Yeah. And the and the professor that he um, that he works then, with is like you're you're never gonna. <laughs> Like, you're not going to fill your father's shoes. You're going to have to, like, make your own way or something like that. And, you know, I, I think that that's interesting because they, they also talk a little bit about um, Dustin Hoffman's character as a, a liberal pacifist. And they juxtapose that with um, some of the other things that are going on, politically speaking. And, you know, he undergoes a change throughout the course of what he's about to face. Yes, he does. Um so let's see. Yeah, we cut back to Paris and uh, Roy Scheider. And he's, um, I believe he's just staying in a hotel. This is the, this scene in particular is where I thought about Bond. Oh, okay, okay. I see um, that. Because he's in this hotel and this Asian man comes in with a garrote. And uh, he's like standing. I mean, it's also, there's some Hitchcock in yeah, there. Yeah, there's onlookers well, from across but, the street that really can't do anything but watch. That, uh, that felt really Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, and so he's standing on the balcony, and there's this sort of flowing um, white... Uh, oh, Jesus, how am I blanking on the name for that now? Um, curtains. Yeah, curtains. And we see this this guy behind him, and his face is just like in the curtain. It was a pretty creepy image. Yeah, I thought this was a really tense and scene. And then he goes after Doc with the garage. He tries to, you know, like slit his throat with this... Um, Basically, you know, piano wire type thing. You know, it seems like they used to do more stuff with garrots in movies and books, and you just don't really see that as much anymore. Yeah, you really don't. But so 
Roy Scheider manages to put his hand in the way right before um, right before it hits his throat. So he's able to save himself but fuck up his hand. And then there's a, you know, tete-a-tete. He's fighting this guy and he eventually, which is pretty brutal, he gets him against the couch and just like, or he's on his back and he somehow breaks his neck. Yeah, it's like he's way. doing one of those wrestling submission holds, but he like goes all the fucking way and just breaks his neck or his back. It's like a crab, one of those crabs or something like that where you're just bending. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And um, then we get some more cool spy stuff where he calls a phone number and he just says, you know, like, clean up one body. <laughs> like, is there any damage? He's like, yeah, my hand. I need to see a person. Yeah, I think he just says removals. Like, he's like, he's calling a department of a store or something like that. Oh, yeah. Removals one. And then do you need to see the doctor? Like, yes, my hand. Yeah. And so they've you know, so they're establishing that there's, you know. There's some infrastructure support for whatever mission Doc is on, because so far we've really only seen him mostly on his own, talking for short periods of time to random people that you don't really know what the working relationship is. So we at least know that there's a hotline you call when you got to get rid of a body at this point. Um, but the, I mean, apart from yes, <laughs> and I believe that hot, later we find out it's called the division, correct? Yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah, that, that was an interesting. And basically, I mean, they don't go into it too much, but they basically say it's. Sort of in between the FBI and the CIA, they have the division to do more or less like groundwork. Yeah, I was reminded a little bit of Stephen King's The Shop, where it's like, I mean, in his work, it's like connected to the CIA, but unofficially. And this is one of those, you know, between the lines or between the departments kind of scenarios. And they do they do a lot of the the gray and black work uh, that happens, I guess. But uh, you never learn a ton about the division, really, which I think is interesting. No, I I mean, I think it's probably for the best, because like the point is that they're supposed to be. You're not supposed to know who the hell yeah. they are. Yeah, I mean, that you keep guessing on allegiances throughout the whole freaking movie. I thought that was one of the best things that they pulled off is just keeping, you know, keeping the suspense going because you have no idea who you can trust at all, even even the people you think you can trust. Yeah, yeah. So um, around this point, and admittedly, I think this is one of the weaker parts of the film, but we're introduced uh, to, and give me a second, I'm going to find her name. We are introduced to, come on, IMDb, Elsa, played by Martha Keller. Yep. And I, I think of all the scenes, this one probably hasn't aged the best because they're just in a library and Dustin Hoffman's like, starts normal enough. This woman asks him, I think, for directions. So he he writes the directions and then he might take one of her books on purpose i'm not entirely yeah, sure yeah she, she asked him for a detail about boss tweed because he's a history guy and i guess she is too and she's asking if that was his real first name or if that was a nickname or something like that um and he he does give her an answer because like they basically throughout the scenes in college they've taken care to characterize hoffman's character as like he's very knowledgeable about i mean yeah he's in grad school on a dissertation but he's probably even like above a lot of the people in his class he's just maybe not applying himself all the time, but yeah, he, he knows a lot and he just has all this detail at the top of his head. And so, yeah, he, he is kind of a, I mean, here's where I was like, okay, well now the nickname makes a little sense because he does take her book and then follows her home. So like, yeah, okay, that's kind of, kind of a creep move to do. Yeah, that is a creep move. And like, it's not so much even that like, okay, yeah, it's not great if you took her book to just talk to her, but like, but then she's at her apartment door and like he just keeps going and you're like, OK, this this is where nowadays that would not 
I mean, I think even back then it probably wouldn't fly. Yeah, she. I mean, she tells him to leave. She repeatedly says goodbye. There's definitely all kinds of, um, you know, violating terms of consent that have been set forth for him. But, you know, it's a movie. He, he pursues and she, uh, you know, eventually agrees to go out with him. You know, I mean, they, they kind of, she, he wins her over, essentially, which, you know, however problematic that is, it happens in the movie and uh, they, they start seeing each other. Yeah, they start dating. But what's interesting is and I can't I'm not entirely sure on this, but I think it's correct. I don't think any of the love angle is actually in the novel. I want to say the novel is more or less just Doc and Babe and then, you know, Doc gets killed and then Babe has all the shit happen to him. But I, I don't think there's any angle of him having a love interest. Yeah, they uh, that really does, does feel a little bit unexplored or underexplored. But I mean, I guess given the, the runtime of two hours and five minutes, they're you know, I guess they, they were like, well, I mean, we don't really have much yeah, more room needed, here. <laughs> I, I mean, better or worse, you know, older films and even newer films, everyone's encouraged to write in uh, a love interest. Yeah. And I think sometimes it works and sometimes it's like this is unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some ways that they use it interestingly, though. Like I thought that was a really, um, you know, coming up soon, there's a conversation in a restaurant that has Doc's character that I thought was really it was an interesting scene to cause in public and like just show his willingness to um, kind of you know, throw her under the bus. Cause, and it reveals parts of his character that become relevant. But anyway, that's a little bit ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, but so, uh, and I, I mean, I guess I understand it too. Cause in a novel you can get much more internal. So like you can just be in his head for periods of time and then, Possibly, I, I don't remember, but maybe he gets jumped in the park by himself. And, uh, but I can understand why they'd want an extra character to sort of bounce that off of to explain why he might be in the park later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty soon. Like they start, <laughs> they show them, uh, you know, waking up or not waking up, but finishing up sex like pretty soon. Like they they don't. I mean, yeah, it's one of those movie romances where it takes exactly five minutes. Where it's like, we met. Okay, now we're on a date. Okay, now we had sex. Cool, now we're dating. Like, and it takes you know less than yeah. ten minutes. Uh, yeah, but yeah, they're in the uh, they're in the park together soon after that. Um, and they're mugged by two men in suits, uh, and they just get hit and uh, knocked to the ground. I mean, they're not they don't go to the hospital, I don't think, but they you know they do get smacked around quite a bit. They get roughed up, but not so badly they need to be hospitalized. Yeah, but um, what's um, but they do have their information stolen, their wallets, their their uh, money. Yeah, but what's noteworthy about that is that these are not like just ordinary muggers. They're dressed in suits like businessmen. Yes, which comes into play later. Um, I guess there's not really an ordinary mugger costume. I shouldn't really put it that way, but anyway, <laughs> you don't well, expect. I men mean, in suits. Stere- I guess a stereotypical mugger, which would be like you know, a hoodie maybe or like a leather jacket and looking like a little more streetwise. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, yeah, it looks like a bunch of older businessmen, um, and they rob them, and uh, Bay basically writes a letter to Doc, explaining, you know. Hey, how's it going? I got mugged and you always told me not to stay in the park later and you know, this and this happened and anyway, you know, contact me if you can, kind of a thing. Yeah, and I think that comes into play when when he and Doc start talking about pacifism because that that becomes a core part of the the change that Hoffman undergoes. Yeah, a lot of the crux of the novel is more or less like what if an average person was forced to be like a spy? Yeah. 
Um, but you know, through like extenuating circumstances, not by choice. Um, but so there's an interesting scene a little later, uh, where basically, um, Dustin Hoffman is in his apartment and he hears someone in the apartment. He's been sleeping and he wakes up and he hears someone in the apartment. And then it turns out to be doc who like just starts roughhousing with him. <laughs> yeah. They stage it really well. I, I, yeah, that really got me. I thought it was an intruder of some kind. And you know, you, you he's just been mugged by these two mysterious men in business attire. Uh, so he's obviously in some kind of danger because that wasn't an ordinary mugging. Uh, yeah, but you know, so they misdirected us pretty well on that. And it, it turns out to just be doc. Um, and this is yeah, and it works well too because later on there's like a real you know forced entry type exactly. of thing. Yeah, and, and you really don't know. Um, that. But this is you know the fake out, and we get to see their rapport. You know, Doc is like Doc claims that he works in oil. That's why he's always jet setting and has so much money. Um, and it's the contrast between the two of them because Doc, as we've already seen, he's more. I hesitate to say the word classy, but, you know, he's he's more what you'd consider, I guess, affluent, like what you would do if you had a lot of money. You know, you got expensive wines and you go to the best restaurants and you're always in a nice suit, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, he's real dapper. Whereas Dustin Hoffman lives in this pretty run-down apartment and his place is a mess and his, his glasses are never clean. <laughs> I, call, I think his brother calls it a hovel uh, and... He does call it a hobby. And so, yeah, and, you've uh, got a real obvious contrast between these two people here. And I think, really, this is the first scene where I knew that they were brothers. I, I don't remember being sure of that when they were having him write the letter to Doc. I mean, that was... No, not really. You're not really sure how they're connected. And this is the first one where you realize they're, they're brothers. Yep. Uh, but I think right before um, that is it, when we first see the South American side of the story, actually. Yes, yes, you're right. So we cut to, I believe it's Uruguay. Yeah. Um, and it's established to be basically in the middle of the jungle, like middle of nowhere. And this woman is on a boat. And it looks like you can only get to this this area from a boat. And she's got uh, these starched uh, white dress shirts that she brings in. And she puts them in a, in a drawer. And um, she's speaking with another one of the... Um, the housekeepers. And then we get to Lawrence Olivier's character who is, what the hell is this goddamn, uh, cell Christian Zell, you know, Christian Zell, the, the white, white angel. Oh yeah. The vice angle. I think is how they say it. Uh, the vice angle. He... Yeah. Cause he, he does have this, this notable white hair and we know something's going on because pretty quickly he, he cuts his hair off and, you know, trims it way down, gets his suitcase ready. We see a newspaper that I think says, talks about the explosion and the death of his brother. Yeah, yeah. and he also kind of looks like his... Or, sorry, his uh, father. His father, oh, okay. I thought that was his brother. Yeah, his brother got killed. It could be... Bro- I'm not... Actually, that's one thing I'm still confused about, if it's his brother or his uh, I'm like father. 95%. I guess brother would make more sense because they're both yeah, I'm, old. I'm like 95% but... sure it's his brother, but I could be slightly off about that. But but he actually looks... They, they look a little bit alike, um, I thought. You know, so it was like... They did a good job of casting two people who look like they could be brothers, you know, at, at the very least. Um, yeah, yeah. But so he... Um... He gets his stuff together. He's got this really weird uh, umbrella hat he wears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. Um, but they're in the boat and it's raining and they, you know, they take him out of there. I 
I'm not sure the exact sequence of this, but eventually we cut to him on the plane as he's arriving in New York and they explain there's a um, baggage handler strike. So everybody has to get their own stuff. Yep. Um, one of the things the film does effectively is it establishes uh, 70s New York uh, and also 70s Paris, but mainly 70s New York. Oh, yeah. Um, in an interesting historical context. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw, uh, you know, the dingy 70s New York in a movie. I guess I haven't seen a, seen any of those in a while. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's trash heaps. There's just, it, it's... Yeah, I think there's like a trash... I, I, I'm i not sure on Paris. the history. I know there was some either trash strike or some issue with the trash where they weren't getting... It wasn't getting collected. Okay. Yeah, that could have been Paris, though. But, yeah, I mean, it both of them are pretty dingy looking either way. That might have been also <laughs> Paris. It's hard. I can't remember. It doesn't matter that much. But yeah, I mean, you know, so this is used as a way to sort of, um, oh, and we establish on the plane that he actually, he shaves his head to make it look like he's bald. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so he, he gets in and he sort of, he's sort of freaked out because like, there's a ton of people around him. And as we learn, he's a, you know, he was in the concentration camps. He was a Nazi doctor. Yeah. So he's been on the run in South America, basically, for years. Yeah, but so now he's got to uh, surface in the United States, so there must be something important that's bringing him out, and uh, we, we learn a bit more about that real soon. Um, you know, just as as soon as, uh, you know, Doc and uh, Babe meet up, you know, Doc takes him to dinner at a fancy place where uh, they have a kind of a political conversation, and that's where, you know, he meets Elsa, the girlfriend, uh, and, you know, Doc does kind of a real, what seems like a real dick move, and he basically tricks Elsa into admitting she's been lying about her background by saying that she's Swiss. Uh, and, you know, he basically makes up the story about a real small town that he's fam that um, he's familiar with that she had told him about. Uh, but then it turns out to be lies, you know, he, he and it causes quite a scene, and she storms out. Yeah, I mean, he basically says, I think he suspects that she might be working with Cell or related to Cell. Yep. Um, but at this point, he he just knows like you're German, you're a German woman, and you're probably you might be trying to get married to my brother for uh, papers, basically to stay in the country. Oh yeah, that's true. He does bring that up. I think that's what he says, but I think I think what he's thinking is that she's related to Zell, but he doesn't want to say that because he, you know, his brother still thinks he works in oil, so he can't bring up any of that other stuff without admitting he's. Working for the division. Yeah, it's real, like, triple-layered meaning type of conversation where everybody knows a different amount of information. Right, and Dustin Hoffman he knows the least amount. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, she storms out, and uh, Babe is real upset with his brother, which you understand it, because, like, he doesn't have any idea about the backstory. He just thinks his brother, who has been gone for a while, met his new girlfriend and was a total dick for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, kind of a dick move uh, to a person who doesn't know what the hell's going on, definitely. And, uh, you know, Babe is trying to patch things up uh, with her on the phone while the rest of, while the next thing happens where uh, Doc basically goes from there to meet uh, this guy, Zell, who just flew in on the plane. And so they have a real tense conversation, again, where you really don't know exactly what they're referring to, but they keep talking about trust. And it's one of these really, you know, dark, uh, isolated meeting places, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. And, you know, that, that conversation doesn't go well. But uh, do you remember any of the details about that? I, I know they talked a bit about trust. Um, 
The actual conversation, I mean, I do know it, it's something more or less about you need to trust me and I don't trust you. And then to be fair, you know, I know you're working with a fucking Nazi and he's a shithead, <laughs> but like Roy Scheider, you know, Doc, he, he's sort of a dick. Yeah. Like he's just like, I don't give a shit what you think about. Fuck you, basically. Until he gets stabbed in the stomach. Yeah, is that what happened? I couldn't tell exactly if so, he was stabbed or if he was attacked in some other way, because I didn't really see any blood, but that was the only thing I could figure would happen. But Well, I think what it is, and I only learned this contextually from the end, is um, we established that Saul has this kind of oh, neat, yeah. like, pseudo-taxi driver type thing where it's a blade that will pop out of his, um, his dress It's like a freaking sword. Yeah, but it's like a tiny little sword blade thing he can get. It, it looks like it might be on some sort of a spring because he can sort of pop it out at will yeah. um, with maybe a mechanism. So I think that's what he does. I think he uses this um, hidden blade in his sleeve to stab uh, Doc in the stomach. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. And we see that later. So. Um, and it's, you know, it's... it's uh, it's an effective scene because you're sort of like they're getting heated, but you know, you get this, you think they're working. I mean, they are working together and you think, Oh, like they might, you know, he just doesn't like him because he's obviously an ex Nazi and he, he only does this because he has to do it for the division. But, but you know, they get closer and closer as they're arguing. And then, then, you know, doc just lets out this like terrible, like, and you notice that he's sort of like, you know, stumbling a bit and you realize he's been stabbed yeah i thought he might have been injected with a poison i thought he got stabbed in the balls <laughs> at first by the way but uh i guess it was actually the stomach yeah i mean i, I th- at first i thought he might have been like injected with a syringe of poison or something like that because i couldn't see any blood but it's yeah, really shadowy so who knows but they you know, when he shows up at, at uh babe's place uh in the next scene or so he's definitely got a bunch of blood all over him and he's barely alive uh, i thought he was dead at the end of this scene but apparently he made it to the apartment yeah, he manages to hang on long enough to get to Babe's apartment. And he does it, I think, because he wants to see his brother one last time. But it's it, it almost would have been better for uh, Babe if he hadn't. Because him showing up and dying in his apartment makes everybody else assume that he must have told something to Babe. Which I don't think he does. I think he just says, like, his name yeah. and, you know, dies in his apartment. That's, yeah, that's all he says. Um, and, it, it, you know, unfortunately for... Uh, for Babe, uh, that that definitely expands the the world of intrigues that he's about to get exposed to, and you know he's still got this stuff hanging over his head with the, his new girlfriend, uh, and that argument or that blow up that just happened back at the restaurant earlier that night. But uh, the cops show up, and uh, you know they investigate the death, and you know they start grilling Babe, and he just he doesn't know anything. He keeps like yelling at him like you've you've been at this for two hours. I don't know anything else, and you know they keep you know people who ask him questions. Are kind of, seem to be kind of leading him towards something, and he just doesn't know what it is. So, like, they're kind of testing him in a way. Right, yeah. Um, in a way, this film's like a comedy of errors. Yeah. Except, like, with really dark results. A tragedy results. of errors, I, th- I suppose. Yeah, a tragedy of errors, rather. Um, and eventually, uh, Janeway, um, which I assume was Doc's boss, or at least his contact. Oh, okay, I thought they were... Comes in, he tells everybody to leave, and he basically says, what do you know about your brother? And he says, oh, he worked in oil, and he's like, that's not true. He worked for the division, and then he explains the division is, you know, in between the FBI and the CIA, and we work on these sort of clandestine affairs that they either don't have time to or don't want to deal with. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I had the impression that like Doc and he were basically like at the same level, but I don't think they make it very clear either. That's another part of the intrigue. They could be at the same level too. It could just be a connection. Yeah. Um. But so Janeway, you know, he this is I guess there from here on out, and you realize this after the fact is various types of ways of interrogation. This is the first way, which is like the very nice. I'm sorry about your brother. I'm going to be very honest with you. In your apartment, you know, did he tell you anything? Because he must have told you something. He came all the way back here and, you know, Dustin Hoffman still like, no, he just died. I don't know. He said my name and then he died. Yeah, it's uh, so but like the the guy who tells him about, you know, Janeway, who tells him about the division um, is convinced that you know, whoever killed his brother is going to come here looking, you know, for for babe pretty soon. Yeah, and he says, you know, I'm going to be across the street, but he says, oh, it should be fine. They probably won't show up for another day <laughs> I or thought so. that was a little bit Which turns out anomalous. To, to, like, that's, yeah. no, that's not right. A little suspect, but, um, so, uh, you know, Babe's freaked out. He goes and takes a bath to, like, just fucking cool as shit. And, um, he's sort of zoning out, and then he sees this, the shadow of somebody in his apartment, and he... This is done effectively. He, he obviously he like freaks out. This is very Hitchcocky in this scene. Oh yeah, because he sees the shadow and that freaks him out. But like he doesn't want to move because he doesn't want to let whoever's in the apartment know that he sees them. Yeah, and I, I think I think that they made it like play out kind of slowly because there's all these quiet movements in the the main living area, uh, and and he had he had gotten back from a marathon or from training for the marathon or whatever like. He call because I think he like calls Elsa and he's like I'm gonna take a shower I just got back from a run and then before he can do that is when his brother shows up and so all this has happened after he's back from God knows how much running he he had been doing. Yeah, so he's just like physically and emotionally exhausted. Um, but so he he starts to notice, um, yeah, basically someone in the apartment. So he very quickly gets out of the bath and shuts the door, shuts the lights off. And uh, it's very tense. He tries to break open his window to scream for help, but it's New York, so good luck with that, yeah. buddy. Yeah, and, and I thought uh, it was um, interesting the way they showed. Um, I think it's a knife that's pointing through a crack in the like the door jam or whatever. It reminded me a little bit of some of the Dario Argento scenes I've seen, where there's just like a knife sticking through a a crack in the wall, and they're trying to t- trip a lock or trying to wedge open a door. And like they're they've emphasized so much yeah. that this is a shitty apartment and what they show here is like actually moving the wall, like not just the door, yeah, but the he's wall. able to just basically not so much unscrew the door as just break the wall <laughs> to get the door loose. Yeah. And they managed to, which he does. And then some people grab him and, uh, they start drowning him basically. Yeah. And, uh, and he, uh, they, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, they, I was just gonna say they put his head in and out of the water and until he more or less passes out, um, a way to decapacitate him. Yeah, so you, you're for a moment you kind of think they might have killed him. I mean, apart from the fact that he's the star of the movie, but uh, you, you don't know for sure that he's alive until they show him in a mysterious room uh, in which he's been uh, bound to a chair. Yeah, and I, what I think this film does effectively is the first hour. You know, it's not like action every minute. It's more just establishing character and maybe setting up the stakes. 
But once we get to this scene forward, it's nothing but like Dustin Hoffman like running for his life, basically. Hence the title. Yeah, yeah. But so this is I I mean, I don't know if everyone knows the scene, but uh, a lot of people do that I know at least. Well, maybe not a lot of people my age, but people older. I like my parents know this, of course. Um, and he's in, you know, he's in this weird, just room, and he's tied to a chair, and these these goons are there with him, and they're setting up equipment and setting up lighting, and eventually, um, Lawrence Olivier's character of uh, Saul goes in, and. It's interesting how they do this because the first time he says it, you barely hear him, but he's at the sink and he goes, is it safe? And and then he gets closer and he goes, is it safe? And Dustin Hoffman's like, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't, what is, is what safe? And he keeps going with this and Dustin Hoffman tries different apo- approaches because he's just trying to get the hell out of there. He doesn't know what the hell's going on, so. Yeah. At one point, I think his answer, is it safe? Yes, it's very safe. And then he asks again, is it safe? And he says, no, it's it's not very safe. It's it's quite dangerous. I, I thought it was funny during the midst of all that when he starts just kind of telling him what he want, what they want to hear or what he thinks they want to hear. One of the lines that he says there is almost exactly what I said. You know, I'd probably have some asshole remark to say to this guy, even though you know, nobody's actually brave under torture, I'm sure. But like he basically said the exact kind of smart-ass response that I had in my mind. Which I thought was funny. It was it was a good scene. It's really, uh, really tense because you have no yeah, idea. But you see him like you see this slowly dawning horror because it's, it's Sal and he's very purposeful in like being sort of slow and washing his hands and moving around. And then he unfurls this this uh, thing of dental tools, and that's when you see uh babe's eyes sort of like go wide and he's like oh what's what's happening now yeah i mean metal implements are never a good thing to see when you're strapped to a chair i would say no and so you know cell gets the the little mirror they have for teeth and he gets like the little scraper basically and he goes in and it, it it's it's performed very effectively cuz he's like almost very nurturing about it he's like very gently holding babe's head and like Looking like a regular dentist, almost like checking inside, and he goes, "Oh, you've got a cavity. That's not good." And then, of course, he sticks the the needle or the yeah the scraper like just into the cavity. Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman obviously screams in pain. Never, never. And then he stops and he goes, "Oh, look here! I got this oil of cloves." And he gives it and he puts it on his gun, his the tooth, and he goes, "See, it doesn't hurt anymore." And he's like, I can give you both of these. I can give you relief or discomfort. And you just got to tell me what I want to know. Yeah. And unfortunately, Dustin Hoffman has no idea what the fuck's going on. So. <laughs> hate it when that happens. Uh, but yeah, after they do a round or so of, of quick torture in the in that room, they kind of take him to another room where just one of the thugs that's doing bodyguard work. Um, I think he's just trying to continue to get the information out of him. But uh yeah, in, in this other room, they, they show Janeway creeping up in the background. Uh, apparently he's broken in because you know, supposedly he was keeping an eye on the apartment when Dustin Hoffman was kidnapped. Um, yeah, and he appears to shoot the uh, people holding Dustin Hoffman, and he helps him escape, puts him in the back of the car, and he's driving around, and he's like, I'm going to let you know what's happening, you know? Here's the like, info dump. 
your brother was working for this Nazi and we were you know, trying to get his uh, jewelry and all of this. So he must have told you something. He's like, no, he didn't tell me anything. And it's it's pretty darkly funny because it's you realize that actually Janeway is in on it because eventually, you know, he's doing this kind of high speed fake uh, departure type thing in the car. And when he realizes that Dustin Hoffman is not going to tell him anything this way, he drives right back to where they were. And that's when Babe sees the two guards that were supposedly shot and they're alive. Yeah. That- and he can't believe it. He's just like, you killed him. Like, and then I think eventually he switches to you killed or it might, he might just be saying you killed him the whole time as in his brother. OK, I thought he was saying I saw you die or I, I saw them die or something along those lines. But I mean, at first he said I saw them die because. That's obviously a normal reaction. Like, he thought these guys were shot and killed, and they're just coming outside to get him yeah. again. But then I think near the end, he does say, you killed him, meaning he thinks he's finally, like, you, you oh, got right, my brother right, killed. Right. And this is when we get the worst part of the torture, where, I mean, it's worse, too, because you you thought, like, oh, he's going to break free, and then you realize, like, oh, no, no, he's he's even more fucked now. Yep. They bring him back, and then um, this is when Sal gets the electric drill, and you know it's bad when he plugs it in. You hear the... No one likes to hear that. It's just like... Yeah, and he's just like, so unhealthy tooth is bad, but boy, you will not believe how bad it's going to be with a healthy tooth. (laughs) And yeah, it's pretty pretty brutal. They don't even show it. They just show him going in, and they kind of cut out, and you just hear this like, God awful scream from Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, uh, but in that in that car scene, uh, we we learn a couple of details that come up about that um, box with the diamonds. Uh, you know, apparently, you know, the only person with a key to it besides the brother that died is you know this this Christian Zell, and the entire reason he had to come out of Uruguay yeah. is because like there's literally no one else who can even access the safe deposit box, and that's where all his wealth is stored. But I thought you know the details about how. Zell used to be, you know, a dentist in in Auschwitz, and he started out accumulating wealth from the gold that he was taking out of prisoners there, uh, and then eventually working his way up to diamonds, which I think I think he was accepting diamonds to help people escape when it was visibly obvious yeah, that things yeah, were going down. Yeah, he was down. like letting people escape or live for jewelry and a lot of, and you know, the gold. They make sure to specify it started from him stealing gold fillings, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but apparently he's one of the most um, wanted. So he's a shithead. He's a real shithead. <laughs> yeah, he's not a great guy. Yeah. Um, and so eventually he says, you know what? Saul says, he doesn't know. If he knew, he would have talked. Like, that's insane pain I just put him through. So if he knew, he would have said something. And he says, get rid of him. And the, the goons take him uh, to the car. But he manages to kind of pretend he's more out of it than he is and he breaks free and starts running and this is when the marathon man part sort of comes back into play because now it's this whole different context of him having to outrun these people that are trying to kill him yeah and i I think um and he's like half drugged and half awake and just fucking totally out of it with pain but he's running and it's, yeah, it's very effective. There's like an ambulance that comes by that he tries to flag down that just almost runs him off the road and then just keeps going. Yeah, this was a really cool scene because you get to see a lot of, um, you just run down 70s New York at night. It's totally deserted. But at the same time, the, the people who are trying to kill him don't really want to use their guns because that'll draw attention, I assume. 
So they're trying to run after him and keep up with him. I'm like, aha, <laughs> he has an edge on you here at last. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, but he, you know, he's, he's good. He's good at what he does. He, he manages to like outrun most of them and he gets to this, uh, overpass, you know, onto the highway basically. And he manages to get onto the highway and they're shooting at him, but he avoids it. And then they get in the car and they try to run him down that way. And he manages to jump from one overpass to the next. Which is a pretty big jump. Too. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised that he was able to make that, but hey, that's a movie. I think he's also barefoot, isn't he? Uh, maybe. I don't remember that detail. I'd have to At double point, check. Sure, but like, he's definitely like, he's definitely like not in much clothing. In yeah, he's, he's mostly naked. But yeah, he manages to do that, and he escapes. He gets a taxi somehow. <laughs> Who the hell knows how? Um, but he gets the taxi, and he tells him to keep going because they go by his apartment. and He sees these cars in the front, and He's just sketched out, so he tells him to keep going, and it's sort of sad. He has this Rolex he got from his brother, but he's so desperate to call someone. He's like, here, I'll give you this Rolex if you give me a dime to call someone. Yeah, and it may, let me know if you if you um, know the answer to this, but was that cab driver the same cab driver in the opening scenes where uh, they show the Jewish guy chasing down you know, the German guy, but right before that happens, there's a, a cab driver pulled up to the light next to him, and they exchange words for a moment. Uh, and I think that was the same cab driver. I'd have to double check. I'm not entirely Looked sure. Looked like the same guy, but anyway, probably not important. It could be. <laughs> I mean, it very well could be. A long um, shift. But in any case, <laughs> yeah, he um, he calls, um, I always forget her name, too. Esther. Uh, he calls or Elsa. Elsa, yeah. And is like, I'm in trouble. I need you to help me. And then he does this thing where he goes across the street to the guys that give him shit every day. And he's like, he's like, listen, can you help me? And the guy's like, who the fuck are you? And he's like, I'm the, I'm the creep. I'm the creep from next door. Yeah, this was an ingenious move on his part. The guy's part. like, what do you want? And he's like, I need you to get a gun and some clothes for me. And he's like, why would I do that? And he's like, I don't know. Help me, please. Oh, uh, yeah, we should probably mention that uh, they've made a point of showing that Dustin Hoffman's character has a gun in his uh, dress uh, desk, desk drawer that is apparently the gun that his father used to kill himself. And that's kind of juxtaposed yeah. with. The conversations with his brother where it's emphasized that he's a pacifist. So yeah, there's this whole question of is he going to actually use this thing? Right. Yeah, there is a pretty funny line the doc has earlier where he's like, for a pacifist, you sure have a vendetta basically, oh, or yeah, something yeah. like that, like a shriek for vengeance. Because he's holding on to the gun his father killed himself with. I mean, that's I don't know how pacifistic that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's never used it before, but now he's got a reason to possibly need it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the whole point of the movie is that, like, it, it sort of gets into, like, lineage and, like, bloodlines and how, like, I mean, like, they never say it outright, but there's a line the doctor has where it's like, well, your brother has a high tolerance to pain, so sometimes that is inherited. And at first you think, oh, that's bullshit, but then Dustin Hoffman gets, like, his, his healthy tooth drilled in and manages to just fucking run the fuck away. Oh yeah, well they and do he does all this shit like hour on. So you think, oh maybe that's legit. They they did mention something earlier to set that up about how when he's running, he's able to just ignore the pain because he he had some kind of injury. Yeah, he does specify when he meets Elsa, he twisted his ankle. But when you're a marathon runner, you learn to ignore that yeah. pain. So anyway, he uh, he gets the. He gets the assholes on the stoop from next door to actually um, to break into his own more place. or less break into his apartment because he's oh, but he says you can take whatever the hell you want. I don't care. Just give me clothes and a gun. I think that's how he convinces them. 
And so they're over there and Janeway runs into them. And it's a pretty funny scene where he draws a gun on them. And it's like five other dudes. And they're like, nah, and they all have guns. Yeah, I thought it was just going to be that one dude like surreptitiously sneaking into Dustin Hoffman's apartment. But it's like a whole crew of I think it's even more than five guys, but they're all crowded in this hallway. Yeah, it's a lot. Of it guys was a funny standoff there. Guns. So they're like, nope, sorry. Uh, which is a very <laughs> who New the York fuck thing, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so they go do their thing and um, they get what they what they go for uh, while Janeway's trying to stop them and is powerless to do so. Yeah, and uh, eventually uh, Babe ends up with his gun, and he ends up with some clothes, and uh, we cut to Elsa basically driving him to this, I'm not really sure where it was, I assumed it was somewhere outside of New York, this house. Yeah, somewhere rural. And he goes to the house. Just somewhere rural, yeah, that they can get to by car. Yeah, somewhere rural, like far, I assumed it was about an hour outside of New York yeah. City. Um. And, uh, but yeah, so they, or maybe upstate, I don't know, somewhere away from New York City. And they go, and, um, Dustin Hoffman, this is when he sort of gets sort of sneaky. Like, you, you get the sense, oh, he really might have been able to be a secret agent because he, he's talking to Elsa and he sort of leads her on with, like, oh, so you work for Zell. And she says some stuff and she's like, how did you know? And he's like, I didn't until now. Yeah. So he realizes that he's been set up by, Elsa, here's where I'm still confused, and I'd have to rewatch and maybe read the book again. Although I don't know if Elsa's actually in the book, to be honest. I don't know what relationship Elsa had to the cells. She's a courier. She says that she's like, she just drives people. She's just like a transporter. Like, she's another kind of ground okay, level so she employee is just a of transporter. some kind. Okay. They don't make it very clear, but she's... I wasn't sure if she just said that to say that, uh, well, so she'd be in less trouble possible. with him, or if that was true. I, I took her at her word. It seemed like she did have some genuine affection for him and didn't really want him to get hurt, but, like, she was kind of in over her head herself. Um, but I, I do think all of the stuff from the beginning with her in the library talking with him, I do think that was intentional. Like, she intentionally got close to yeah. him. So that they could, you know, like rob him and get his information and all that. Yeah, well, they, they've been offing these couriers, like uh, apart from the attempt on um, Doc's life, they, they had one or two other examples of people who like were operating in the same level as him. They mentioned like somebody's going after these people in particular. And, um, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I mean, that's so she might it also be somewhat afraid for her own life if she doesn't like transport him to where you know, to the safe house that turns out to be the, the brother's house that's dead now. Yeah, yeah. And this is also, I mean, this is a really cool scene because um, he basically, he holds her at gunpoint. It's sort of cold, but I mean, you know, he's been tortured and his brother just got killed. So what the fuck? Um, but he holds her at gunpoint and Janeway comes with two other of the like nameless goons. And there's this sort of standoff where he's like, oh, what are you doing? And he's like, don't get any closer. And he's like, well, you know. We can make things worth your while, basically. He's trying to convince uh, Babe to put the gun down and work with them, and they eventually get into the house, and he's holding the gun on them, and there's this sort of, like, very tense um, Janeway saying, you've never fired that gun, and how good is your aim? And they're intentionally fucking with him. They're, like, turning on the lights, and they're moving around a little bit. Yeah, clearly they're professionals, and he's a newbie at this game. Right, but even still, one of them, against, I think, Janeway's wishes, pulls his gun and uh, 
Dustin Hoffman holds his own. He shoots that guy, shoots the other guy. And, um, or no, you know what happens actually? He's going to shoot them, but then Janeway ends up shooting both. Oh of them. yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very confusing because <laughs> he says, well, I couldn't trust them because Janeway's like super unscrupulous. Like, I don't think he has any side. He just goes with whatever side he thinks is going to win. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, but so he, he's still playing babe and saying, well, you know, here for your brother, I'll let you go get him. Okay. I'll let you go kill him. And it's, it's, it's staged and done well because, you know, Dustin Hoffman leaves and you think Dustin Hoffman has left to go to the car. And then you see Janeway and he's sort of like going to the door cause he's just got his gun drawn. He's just going to kill babe. But, um, Elsa tries to stop him and she gets shot for her trouble, killed. And this is when you realize that um, Babe has actually been on the porch the whole time and he shoots Janeway through the window. Yep. That was that was cool. And he shoots him once, I think, in the like chest and once through the face. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. The whole the whole house scene here I thought was really well staged, especially from the beginning where it's kind of just slow and like nothing much is happening while it's just him and Elsa. This is where there's a little bit of breathing room before the goons show up, and then it gets real tense again when the goons are in the house, and you have no idea who's going to shoot who or what's going to happen. And yeah, you know, you're kind of sorry to see Elsa. Yeah, go. it's a very classic like action scene. It's almost reminiscent of like an old western where they have this sort of trick they do. Like, like this isn't an old western, but in the uh, the Breaking Bad movie El Camino, they sort of I think take this from an older western where it's like we're going to count to three and then draw our guns. Wow. And so they count, and then at two, obviously, um, Jesse's character just shoots the guy. Wow, I've completely forgotten about that. I I watched that movie, and I just it's kind of just dropped out of my brain. I, it didn't really register all that much with me. That was the only part that really <laughs> stuck with me. That, and he ends up in Alaska, but that was yeah. about it. I mean, also, admittedly, that stuff's more at the forefront when you live in New Mexico, because like, that's such a huge part of being oh, in New yeah. Mexico. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's probably the top pop culture reference that's associated with New Mexico still. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what got the New Mexico film industry going was Breaking Bad because they filmed it all around here. So, well, hey, you know, that's that's good news for you. <laughs> True. It's good that uh small tangent, but good that um, goddamn Saul is still kicking. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, he had a small heart attack. Yeah. Praise be to Bob. Glad that he seems to be have recovered from that from what I've yeah. read. I mean, dude, I believe it, man. Like, it's been fucking... It's been, like, 95 and humid, like, in Santa Fe, and we're we're higher elevations, so Albuquerque gets usually about 10 degrees hotter, so he's probably out in, like, 100-degree fucking day. Fun times. And he is in his 60s, I think, too. Yeah, seems about right. Yeah, but, you know, praise be to Bob. Um, but also, yeah, we get the fucking final season of Better Call Saul, thank God. Although you sort of know where it goes. Whatever, this is a whole thing. <laughs> I only watched the first few episodes. Anyway. I need to go back and try that again. It's a I, good show, but it's very different from Breaking yeah. Bad. But anyway, yeah, so this is like one of those classic action scenes where it's like, you know, the guy pretends like he leaves so he can shoot someone through the window, basically. Yeah, expertly staged. And, uh, you know, so here's, you know, so now he's going for the final showdown to try to catch up to Zell, who has been given an ultimatum uh, in a, a recent scene where you know, Janeway, acting in his capacity now as an American political operative, has basically told Zell that he has to leave the country by one o'clock 
you know, this day, you know, he told him this yesterday, but it's right. Today. Like if you can't get us the diamonds, like you're useless yeah. to us. So, so Zell has to find a way to surreptitiously get his diamonds out of the bank, trade them or sell them to somebody to convert it into cash and get out of the country by like one o'clock this day. But, you know, Dustin Hoffman's on the way to foil those plans if he can. Yeah. And this scene is really what I think is neat about the Marathon Man, which I actually forgot, is that. It really gets into like an ex-Nazi, just surrounded by Jewish people. Yeah, that's that scene in the Diamond um, District. That was really cool. Um, it's pretty great because yeah, he's going into places and he goes to like one, and this guy's like, "I know you," and he's like, "Oh no, you don't." And then the guy's like, "No, no, I know you." He's like, "Oh well, I have an antique store in um, London." In London, and then he actually pretends, I think, to be Jewish. He's like, "Oh yeah, we had to leave Germany when the." When the Nazis were coming around and yeah, but you can tell this guy doesn't really believe him. He's sort of still like, I know you from somewhere else. And he's walking in the diamond district, you know, surrounded by like Orthodox and regular Jewish people. And this woman sees him and is like, I know that man. And it, it is very Hitchcockian. Yeah. It's like slowly building. And eventually this woman's like screaming, like, you know, th- that's the white angel. I know him. And, yeah, they, they sh- <laughs> he's a Nazi and like some people are like, oh, that old lady's crazy, whatever. And but, you know, obviously, um, Sal is like sweating it because like, you know, he's he's been in hiding. So if anyone actually finds him, he's fucked up. Yeah, no, I think it was. So he starts kind of going a little faster. But eventually um, this older woman runs into the road and she almost gets hit with a taxi. So all these people are sort of focusing on her. But then this this other man who has noticed him is like, I know you. And this is when we see his cool little like hidden knife inside of his uh, side of his dress coat that he's able to pop out and he slits his throat. And he pretends with this guy like, oh, he's, he's in medical trouble. And he kind of puts him against a trash can so he can keep going. Yeah, it's kind of like a, one of those cases of just something really crazy happening in plain sight. And he's just pretending there's nothing going on. And he's using the crowd to cover himself. But uh, yeah, yeah, and then but then dust, but then a uh, babe shows up and he's uh got his ratty little sweatshirt, but he's got his gun poking out of it, and he goes, "All right, move," and he takes him to what turns out to be very um. It's already been established where Dustin Hoffman's been jogging that there is this water treatment uh building. That was a really cool building they chose, and, by the way. Uh, I thought that was an awesome suit. Yeah, it's a cool building. And also it's neat that it's actually like kind of dead center of where Dustin Hoffman's been running the whole movie. How about that? Good job, scriptwriter. Yeah, yeah. They do that a lot. <laughs> they come back around and stuff. But so, yeah, they go and he leads them in. And um, Dustin Hoffman basically tells the guy, there's one guy working there and he's like, you can't be in there. He's like, just go, get out of here. And it's just the two of them and. Uh, Sal is trying to win Dustin Hoffman over. He's like, you can have some of this, you know, like I can, we can help each other out if you just let me go. And and then eventually he goes, okay, well then shoot me. And he's like, I'm not going to shoot you. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? He says, I'm, you can have as many of those diamonds as you can eat, which is pretty brutal. Yeah, that was awesome. There's your, there's your heel turn. Well, not really heel, heel turn because he's still a Nazi. So, I mean, making meat diamonds isn't that bad. Yeah, but I mean that's super brutal because it's like diamond ain't gonna go <laughs> for the character. Easy. It's <laughs> they use those things to cut into rocks. Yeah. For a pacifist character, that's you know that's that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, I think the whole point is he's not. He's probably not a pacifist. He's just 
hasn't been violent. His yeah, he life. hasn't been put into a situation where it's uh, it's a live or die kind of scenario, or where there's a. Yeah, I guess the whole point of the movie is sort of getting into like when people are pushed to a certain point, everybody reacts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Babe is holding the gun on him, and he's. Uh, he gets the suitcase full of diamonds and he starts fucking throwing them and like, I mean, good on him, but honestly, and as, as fucking unethical as this is, dude, like, I don't know. I'd probably just be like, all right, peace and just fucking take all the money. Yeah, you could donate that to a good cause if you don't want it for yourself, at least. Yeah, you could still give it back. <laughs> give it. But like, no, Dustin, like, babe is just so pissed off. He just starts throwing diamonds at this yeah. guy. yeah. And it's been established, by the way, that each is six carats, and each carat is fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, and there's like so he's probably throwing hundreds of thousands multiple of handfuls. Into the there's like water. multiple handfuls worth of diamonds in there. Multiple handfuls, yeah. And eventually, Saul sees that he's fucking nuts, so he's like, "All right," and he he eats like one diamond, and like you can see him like struggle to get it down. Yeah, and one of the parts that I like the most about this confrontation is that the audience knows about this little. Uh, you know, arm sleeve sword, mini sword that Zell has. Yeah, again, going back to the Hitchcockian thing, it's like the bomb under the table. You know, it's like we know, it's like the audience knows he's got this secret knife, but Babe doesn't know and it. Like so they're... Saul is trying to get closer to him and sort of like get close enough that he can just swing and, you know, kill him and leave. Yeah, but Hoffman, thankfully, um, you know, kind of holds his own, even though he almost loses it at a certain point. And it, at one point... What does he do? He just basically throws the rest of the briefcase with the rest of the diamonds uh, over the edge of the, like the rail from the level they're on. Yeah, he just tosses it, and Cell is so overcome with uh, greed that he he goes to run after it, and he just sort of um, collapses and falls and on these stairs, and he, he ends up dying somehow. Yeah, I think he he slits he oh, stabs no, no, no. himself. I he know, stabs no. himself from the fall. His secret knife came out and he because he took it out to try to kill Dustin Hoffman and he still had it out and he ends up stabbing himself. Yeah. I think through yeah, the heart. Yeah, he, he uh, hoisted himself on his own uh, knife. Yeah, and uh, this is also where I was like, you know, I get it; it works dramatically, but like, there's still a suitcase there. There's I'd, still I'd money go in dipping it. into some nasty waterworks for I a few would diamonds. Probably yeah. go get it. I mean, I don't know, like. Like, yeah, it's not great, but also we've seen how Dustin Hoffman lives. I mean, like, but obviously that's in, the phrase, bitch, you live like this. Comes yeah, but up. obviously that's important to his personality for why he doesn't care about the diamonds and why he's like contrasting that with with Zell and and Zell's thirst for the diamonds is what kills him. Literally, you know, I mean, what kills him? Yeah, I mean, one thing that isn't. I mean, so here's one thing we can get into. One thing that I don't know that they keep from the novel is that it's explicit in the novel that Babe is Jewish. They, his last name is Levy, so it's not directly mentioned, but you can kind of make a safe assumption, I think. Right, and like that's sort of, I think that was the vibe of why he didn't take any of the money was he's just like yeah, it's fucking dirt. stolen from a bunch of Jews that yeah, got killed. Dirty Fuck money. That. Right. But yeah, so eventually he. Uh, he leaves and um, he's just standing where he's always been jogging, and that's the end of the. F oh, he tosses the gun. Yeah, first. he tosses the gun in the water. Very symbolic. He tosses the gun into the water, so he's done with that. And I guess he's done holding on to the memory of his father. One thing we also didn't bring up is <clears throat> it's heavily implied that uh, Babe and Doc's father was also working for the division, or was at least some kind of clandestine agent. 
Oh, okay. I didn't really catch that. I thought he was mainly just persecuted for being a left-leaning history professor. Yeah, you... Okay, so this is where it gets a little tricky, but it could be, because they never really specify, at least in the movie, it could be that he was just, you know, uh, accused in the McCarthy hearings. But I saw it as... There's one line that Janeway has when he meets with um, Babe about how his his brother and his father were both involved in this... In the division. Oh, okay. But they say, well, they say involved, but you don't know how involved. Like, you don't know how involved the father actually was. Uh, okay, so could his suicide have been a hit, actually? Well, I think they were implying the suicide could have been maybe that the father was doing, like, errands. You know, like, working for the Nazis, say, like, to help them out and just felt so horrible about it. Oh, okay. He couldn't. But it could also just be he was a communist. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, they leave a lot of details vague, and, and really there's there's probably a number of questions that I would be able to answer going back and doing a second viewing of this. And, you know, it's good enough. I might do that someday. But I'm uh, sure they specify in the novel. Yeah. I remember the novel being good, by the okay. way. William Goldman, in case you never heard of him, author of The Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah, he's very versatile, because he it's went from different. doing The Princess Bride to... You know, fucking marathon, man. Very different, but hey, you know, uh, a man of multiple Very talents, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and th- there's one... Th- he is, although he does he does have that through line of people getting stabbed. <laughs> That's true. That's true. A lot fewer princesses in this one. And actually, father's being killed. Yeah. I wonder if he had, uh, you know, I wonder if his father passed away tragically in some way. I don't know. But yeah, in any case, um, I like this movie... I'm sort of with you. I don't really understand why it's not, uh, you know, there are some older films that we can still find easily. And then there are other ones that just sort of seem to slip through the cracks. But this one confuses me because like, you know, it's like Dustin Hoffman. He might not have and had Lawrence a Olivier. ton of roles lately, but like, he's still an actor. Yeah. And how often do you, I mean, Lawrence Olivier, I mean, that's, I didn't realize he had still yeah, been Lawrence acting Olivier, in the seventies at um, the time. Roy Scheider too, who's like super popular from yeah. Jaws. Yeah, it's a good cast. Uh, one thing that I want... But yeah, for like like we said off air, the only way you can watch this is basically signing up for like a Cinemax add-on. Yeah, right? I did the free trial, which that reminds me I need to cancel my free trial. <laughs> yeah, I'd go ahead and cancel <laughs> There's that. not much on there other than this one that I wanted to watch, actually. So yeah, that'll be easy. Uh, one thing I noticed that I wanted yeah, to mention... I did it. I will say AMC, um, AMC Plus is great. Been doing that for a couple months, and I've seen a ton of movies off of that. But yeah, Cinemax. I don't know. It, it, yeah. One thing I wanted to mention from uh, is what it is from I the guess. Diamond District that I noticed. I, I wonder if you if you think this might be tr- true or not. But one of the oh, if that's the same place, it could be. It's hard to tell because they have a rearranged stuff a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. One of the scenes that they go into looks but like it does look gems. like the same type of a room. It does. It does look very similar. I'll give yeah. you that. Yeah. Anyway, there's there's a room in the Diamond District that looks like one of the stu- places they used for for uncut gems, where he's going in to meet the Bronsteins. So, anyway, that'd be an interesting connection. It wouldn't surprise me if the Safties are fans of this movie because it's a very, you know, it's a tense thriller uh, and takes place partly in the Diamond District. So. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. Watch it. Yeah. I recommend it. Yeah. I do hope that they maybe do some sort of, in the coming years, like a restoration or something. Because I think a lot of the time, these some of these older films, they get put back on because there's some sort of, um, you know, high definition revamp of them or they, or some streaming service decides to buy it and, or Criterion does something with it, you know. 
So hopefully something like that happens because I do think it's a good film and I do think you could make a if it isn't already one, I think you could make an interesting criterion, you know, and inter- have some commentaries from people and some interviews and maybe go into the history of New York in the 70s, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, it's John Schlesinger, which I realize is not necessarily a household name, but I mean, the guy did Midnight Cowboy. Um, oh, did, did he? Uh, I, didn't re- I actually, I'm sure I've seen stuff he's done, yeah. but I'm not entirely sure about his oof. Yeah, I mean, he's also did uh, Cold Comfort Farm, which my, my partner has a copy of, Eye for an Eye, which was an okay Sally Field and Kiefer Sutherland thriller that I saw back in the 90s. I mean, you know, he's not cranking out a ton of classics, but he's got a couple and, you know, Seems like it's a movie worth keeping alive. Yeah. No, that's... I Yeah. That makes... I'm getting thrown off because I guess he was also an actor. Because I'm looking on the IMDb and I'm under uh. his acting thing. Okay, here we go. Director, yeah. Duh. Um, yeah, I mean, he's been... He's been doing stuff, man, yeah. Or he has done stuff up till 2000, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, go check it out. Uh, Marathon Man, John Schlesinger, 1976. Good time. Yeah, I mean, even if you're just a Dustin Hoffman fan, like, I, this has got to be one of his earliest roles. I would have to double check whether this was before um, The Graduate. I do think... I think this might even predate The Graduate. I think The Graduate was before that. I thought that was like early 70s was or it? late 60s, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm going to have to look this up while we're still on air because it's going to bother me. <laughs> 67. Um, Beach to it. So 67 was The Graduate. Okay, so I guess that was first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, go check it out. Yeah, it's a good movie. I mean, yeah, it's a good movie. And in the meantime, practice your breathing exercises. Yes, indeed. Um, so for that, uh, you know, real quick, we're, uh, on Patreon, uh, we have our, uh, Twin Peaks special with me and Chris and the torture porn episode. I'm going to try to get up maybe this weekend. I've got a little time coming up. Um, again, thank you to Shane. This will be probably the fifth time I thank him. Shane's a good egg. If you want to get thanked on the show, throw me a dollar and I'll do it four times for you as well. And the torture porn episode might be one of my um, favorites that I've been, been on. So that's a great discussion to, to sign up for. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, and then on top of that, we're on Twitter at cellular sits. Uh, we're on YouTube again. I'll update it when I update it. I mean, you know, if you're one of those people that likes using YouTube though, and you want to like let your friends know about the show and it's an easier way, the whole first season's up on YouTube. I think the first 10 of season two is up as well. Um, and yeah. And we're on anchor.fm slash cellular sits. So yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up. Um, for cellular citizens, I'm Sean. I'm Thompson. I'm Christopher Burke. And uh, yeah, you know, be careful of your teeth. Yeah.